You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 149 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today, we're talking about ants. Ants! Ants! Ants are super duper cool. These are This is one of my favorite groups of animals. Yeah. Ants are a very interesting group, even for invertebrates. Yeah, no, like, I love ants. I'm very excited to get to talk about them <laughs> for an episode <laughs> length. They're super awesome. We will be discussing as much as we're able to <laughs> in one episode's worth. There's a lot to talk about with ants. Yes. Because there's a lot of ants. So we will discuss what an ant is and what it means to be an ant. You know, what features do ants typically have? And then we're going to take just kind of a, a breezy snapshot look at a couple of different cool ants this episode could be done a dozen different times with all different examples, and it would be just as interesting every time. Yeah, there's a lot of ants. There's a bunch of them. So we'll talk about that. We'll look at fossil ants and what their history has been like. And of course, we'll be discussing this because ants are just the best and because a bunch of people asked us to. All of our episode topics are requested by our listeners, and this topic was requested by a decent number of people. We got requests from musical myrmecologist Anthony, Mike, Arturo, Thea, Alejo, Serpentine, and Jackie. Thanks, everybody, for giving us an excuse to talk for a whole episode about ant stuff. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Also, for those of you keeping score at home, those of you who follow us on social media, the teaser image for this episode is a movie reference. Yep. <laughs> That's the Ant-Man poster. <laughs> Which did a pretty good job showing how awesome ants are. Yeah. I was cool ants in Ant-Man. Very impressed at how they achieved actual ant appreciation. In a silly comic book movie. Yeah. Well done. Way to go, Marvel. Now, before we get into our topic and before we get to our first section of the news, some quick announcements. Since I am not done shouting out names, one of the first announcements is that we have a Patreon. We sure do. They give us money and that lets us do basically everything that we do with the podcast. Yeah, this our Patreon fully funds the podcast and when you sign up at certain levels, you get all sorts of goodies like bonus content and bonus audio and bonus access to us. But also at certain tiers, you get your name shouted out on the episode. So this episode, we would like to welcome our new patrons, Marty, Allison, Jeffrey, and Fog Knight. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for your support. If you, dear listener, would like to support us on Patreon and further our science education efforts, you can find a link to our Patreon in the episode description. Absolutely. You can also support us by going to our Zazzle and buying merch. And now, very recently, you can support us by going to our Audible trial link. Yeah, we are part of the Audible Creators Program now, so you can support us and books. Yes! So we have signed up with Audible, and now you can use the link audibletrial.com slash common descent. And you can find that in the episode description if you didn't write it down. Yep. 
and you will get a 30-day free trial, and you can look at the many, many audiobooks that Audible has available. Yeah, we both have used Audible very happily before, and there's tons of cool science-y stuff on there. And in future episodes, maybe we'll give some specific recommendations for books. If you have some of your favorites, feel free to share them on our social media, on Discord, things like that. Absolutely. I do know there are some ant, like educational ant ones on there. I haven't gotten to listen to them yet, but <laughs> I saved them aside while I was looking through yeah. sources for this episode. Topical. So check that out if you're interested in those audiobooks or to support us. Once again, audibletrial.com slash common ascent. Hey, Will. Yeah. What month is it? Well, it's just now October. Yes, this is the first episode released in October. And wouldn't you know it, we do a special thing in October. We do. Starting the end of the week that this episode comes out, the first Saturday in October... It is officially spooky season. Yes, Spookulative Evolution will kick back up for this month, for this year. We have four episodes as usual, so the next four Saturdays will have a different monster being spookulatively evolved by us. And this year's theme is Monsters of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it's time to get nerdy, folks. So we have chosen four different classic D&D monsters, and we will speculate on the hypothetical evolution of those monsters... Follow those episodes, listen to it, and join the discussion on our Discord, on our social media. We love hearing people's feedback and thoughts about our speculative evolution fun. Yes. And as for upcoming events go, we are nearing the end of the year. Oh, hey, we do a thing for the end of the year. Yeah, so keep your eyes out. We will be announcing more details coming up, but we have our end of the year Q&A coming up just a, few just a couple of months around the corner. Yes, we will open the question submission form in November, so stay tuned for more info on that. And with that, we can wrap up our announcements and get to our first official section, the news. Every episode, we collect some recent paleo, earth history, evolutionary news from studies that have recently been published and share them with you all so that we can all stay up to date with the happenings in the scientific world. David, what's happenings? Well, since this episode we are talking about a cool group of invertebrates, I picked a news about a cool ancient invertebrate. Uh, specifically, a mysterious ancient invertebrate that might maybe be slightly less mysterious. Oh. This is research published in Biology Letters by Simon Conway Morris and Jean-Bernard Caron. And in the blog post after this episode, we will link to an article about this news in The Guardian by Nicola Davis. This research took a close look at a mysterious animal named Typhloesis from the Carboniferous period. This is one of those fossil creatures that, as the authors put it, defies phylogenetic placement, <laughs> which means we don't know what it's related to or where it fits on the animal family tree. That is scientific lingo for super duper weird. Yep. Uh -huh. This is one of those kind of similar to things like the Tully monster or an Anomalocaris, those weird invertebrates that we can't figure out where in the invertebrate tree they fit, or at least there has been debate over time. This one, the debate continues. It lived about 330 million years ago, Carboniferous period, first discovered in the Bear Gulch limestone of Montana back in the 1960s, and more specimens have been found since. So this has been a confounding fossil for many decades. It had a soft body about nine centimeters or three and a half inches long. The article in The Guardian described its body as rugby ball shaped. 
So I went to Google and I looked it up and it that is in fact football shaped. Yeah. American football shaped. It, it's like a football but less pointy ends. Sure. It's the shape of Hey Arnold's head. Yeah. <laughs> About nine centimeters long with a fin at the back. No backbone, no shell, no anus, apparently. A very odd creature. Hmm. In fact, also in the past, it had been noted that there were teeth inside of its body that turned out to be gut contents. Uh, the teeth belonged to conodonts, which is an extinct group of squiggly fish. <laughs> That's much less unnerving. Yeah, well, <laughs> just, just wait. The article title calls it an alien goldfish, which is referenced... In the paper, this is not explained in the article, they just say alien goldfish, but in the paper, apparently a previous paper, I think by the same authors, called it an alien goldfish, half-jokingly, as they put it. Mm -hmm. This study takes a renewed look at Typhloesis, studying about a dozen species housed at the Royal Ontario Museum, and make a handful of interpretations. For one, they point out that it probably swam with its flexible body and tail, well, tail fin, back fin, it's not really a tail. Yep. And the fact that conodont teeth were found in its gut probably means it was a predator, so an actively swimming predator. But they also identify an unusual structure that helps them identify possibly where it fits among animal life. The structure in question is a ribbon-like feature covered in teeth in the sort of back deep in the anterior part of the body. Uh-huh. It's about four millimeters long and is covered in two rows of about 20 triangular-shaped teeth, which the authors point out is very similar in shape to a feature called a radula. Yeah, it is. Which is the tongue-like structure we see in mollusks. Yeah. So mollusks include cephalopods and gastropods, which are uh, octopuses, squids, slugs, snails, things like that. Snails are the ones you will typically see associated with this. This is how a snail grinds its way through plants. Mm-hmm. This is how uh, aquarium snails eat the algae. If you watch them, you can actually see their radula scraping the algae off the glass. Yeah. Also, carnivorous snails use this to drill into the shells of bivalves and stuff. Or like to s- grab and suck up worms and weird things like that. Yeah. Now, they note that this feature looks like a radula, but it's oddly deep inside the body and it's a little bit of an unexpected shape so they suggest that what it might have been doing was turning this structure inside out to stick it out of the mouth oh yeah yeah, yeah. they call it an inverted proboscis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they compare it to certain lizard tongues that kind of do a similar thing yep so it might have been folding the the radula in on itself to tuck it away and then unfolding it to use it for whatever it was using it for. Now, they suggest that this places it within mollusks. Where within mollusks, they're not sure. They suggest it might be close to gastropods, so snails and slugs. But regardless, it seems to be an extinct group that up until now we haven't had any other evidence for. Now, those of you who are familiar with discussions of where mysterious fossil organisms end up placed on the evolutionary family tree will be unsurprised to hear that not everybody agrees with this, (laughs) that this thing has been being debated for decades. This one paper is not going to settle it. Uh, There's already been some disagreement. The Guardian article cites paleontologist Mark Purnell, who points out that different animals are known to have independently evolved features like radulae that aren't true radulae and that aren't true mollusks, 
So it could be a relative of snails and slugs. It could be a mollusk. Maybe it's not a mollusk. Regardless, the authors point out it's probably something completely new, whatever it turns out to actually be. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it would make sense if this was convergent since they noted it being such a weird structured radula mm-hmm. that it, it did not just immediately look like a, a snail's tongue. It So it could be a similar structure for some yet unknown group. Yeah. And I don't think the radula was the only reason that they aligned it with mollusks, but it was one of the big features of the discussion. Yeah. And it, it also wouldn't be that bizarre. Like if you're right now, you're going, oh, this sounds like a super weird snail. Well, uh, there are many, many mollusks and even gastropods that are very mobile aquatic animals oh, that yeah. swim. Sea slugs. Sea slugs are famous for this. There are many, many predatory gastropods. Yes. Tons of predatory snails. Like, mm-hmm. it's not what they're famous for because we are typically dealing with ones that eat our gardens. Yes. But no, tons and tons and tons of predatory snails. Especially in the oceans. Lots of them in the oceans. So this is actually not, wouldn't be unreasonable... Either way, which is yeah. why there's debate. <laughs> yep. So, Typhloesis, more details to come, undoubtedly. Cool. Well, my first bit of news is also about a predator. Uh, this one, though, is not swimming, which is unusual. Oh. Because this is about a giant otter. Oh. This research is by Camille Grohe et al. in Comte Rendu Peleval, and the article is written by Patrick Pester in Live Science. So, this research is about a Pleistocene giant otter from Ethiopia. So this is about three and a half to two and a half million years old. This is a genus called Enhydriodon, which is a group of large otters. Like this is a known group of large otters. This new species is Enhydriodon omoensis. These fossils are from the lower Omo Valley, thus the name, in southwestern Ethiopia, which means due to the time in the area, it coexisted with Australopithecines, the early ancestors and cousins of us humans cool this otter is big how big is it this is one of the biggest of this genus which is known for big otters it's described as lion-sized oh that's a big otter big they estimate it weighed about 440 pounds or 200 kilograms and this is based off of femur fossils and the teeth this genus has other members that are equivalent in size there's another one that's indriohydron dikike also from Ethiopia, that's also given a weight of roughly 440 pounds. It was compared more to a bear when it was published, though. Sure, sure. All right. Well, we got a bear otter and a lion we got We got lions. We got bears. All right. What else? Ah, ah, Stay tuned. Next year, maybe. <laughs> These otters were already known to be big, but this new species and the studies they did indicated some different things, some unexpected things about its potential lifestyle. I glanced at the paper for Dikike, and it noted that they had bunodont teeth, so those blunt teeth good for crushing stuff, but weren't sure what it was eating. Mm-hmm. So there's already some mystery about what they were feeding on, because there was nothing, nothing in the environment that seemed to fit why they would have teeth like this, for sure, assuming they were eating mollusks or turtles or something. This study looked at the stable isotopes of oxygen and carbon in the teeth of these otters, this new species specifically, and isotope studies is one of the ways we can get an idea of what food and even environments animals were eating and living in. Yeah, 
These are chemical signatures locked into the teeth, but taken in by the food or by their environment. Exactly. So where you eat and what you eat is going to change the concentration of the different kinds of isotopes of these elements. The isotopic values in this otter's teeth were similar to terrestrial mammals, other fossil terrestrial mammal teeth from the same location. Big cats and hyenas were the two examples they gave. Mm, the things that are running around on land. Precisely. This seems to, in to indicate that these were terrestrial, or at least this species was a terrestrial otter, a terrestrial predator, not aquatic, like all otters we know today. Yeah. Like the entire group of otters today are aquatic. Kind of what they're known for. It does seem to indicate that they are feeding on both aquatic and terrestrial prey. Sure, sure. And there are plenty of land-dwelling animals that eat aquatic food. Exactly. Bears, for example, are known to do that. Which, this is an upturning because previously this genus was thought to be semi-aquatic. Mm -hmm. That was how it was categorized. That's what the perception was. Uh, this very much is disagreeing with that. Yeah, which is a little bit surprising because not only are otters known to be aquatic animals... But we often associate larger things with getting away with spending more time in the water. Mm -hmm. Things tend to get big in the water. So the fact that these bigger ones had more land-dwelling species, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And they did not give much information on like how it might have been hunting. I don't know if we have enough of the anatomy to start hypothesizing. Right. You said femur and teeth. So yeah. One leg bone. Well, one of the leg elements and then some teeth. And there were other elements listed in the study, if I remember right. Uh, but I don't know that we have, like, full skeletal. We have right, right. isolated elements of this species. All right. They also know that this group went extinct in Africa around the barrier between the Pli Pliocene and the Pleistocene. When we see lots of groups suffer. And they noted specifically specialized carnivores didn't do well during this time right at the start of the ice age yep and this could be due to climatic changes but also this is when ancient hominins shifted into a more carnivorous behavior hey that's us and so we could have been competing with specialized carnivores like this potentially oh, yeah particularly in africa yes yeah. exactly so they they overlapped with our ancestors and our ancestors could have been part of the reason we don't have these lion-sized otters anymore ah. is one of the things that no researchers noted Finding fossil evidence of relatives of modern animals that were bigger than the modern animals is kind of a trope in paleontology. We've talked about this before. That is not always the case, but it is something that we find in regular frequency. There's a lot of animals today that have larger ancient cousins. But I always find it extra interesting when we find that the larger ancient cousins were doing something different. Yeah. It wasn't just that they were a bigger version of the thing we have today. They were living a different lifestyle. They were eating different things and living different ways. Sometimes that is tied to that larger size. Yes. One, well, and, and this is also uh, a great example of this is not the case that is often portrayed, or at least the way it's talked about that things were bigger in the past. This group was bigger. Yeah, this was a group of big otters. This is a weird group of otters mm -hmm. that happened to live in the past and happens to have not survived to today. Yes, and they were doing something different. I am resisting the urge to make a comment about how this species wasn't doing what it otter. <laughs> but we're better than that here yeah, at the Common no. Descent. Yeah, we wouldn't even dignify that with a courtesy chuckle. No, sir. Hey, I've got news about a new species as well. Ooh. This one is also not aquatic. 
and uh, a reptile. Hey. This is research by David DeMar et al. in the Journal of Systematic Paleontology, and we will link in the blog post to a press release from the Smithsonian. This new species is not any kind of reptile. It is a rhynchocephalian. Fancy. These are a group of reptiles that are closely related to lizards, but are not lizards. They were previously very diverse, very speciose, especially in, for example, the Jurassic period. Today, the only living members of this group are tuataras. Yeah. Which is one, possibly two species that live down in New Zealand. So maybe two tuataras. This is one new species, in fact, a new genus and species of ancient tuatara cousin. From the late Jurassic in North America, the Morrison Formation, very famous formation for dinosaurs like Allosaurus, Stegosaurus, Brachiosaurus, and so on. They all lived around 150 million years ago. These researchers studied a handful of specimens of this particular reptile species, but the main focus is one very well-preserved specimen from Wyoming, from a site nearby a well-known Allosaurus nest, which is pretty cool. A well-preserved rhynchocephalian is very exciting because most of the fossils of these reptiles are known from partial jaws. And that is often all we get, the authors noted. This has most of the skull and most of the body. Ooh. It is missing prominently, uh, the article mentioned, only the tail and parts of the hind legs. Basically, the rest is represented to some degree, making it one of the most completely known rhynchocephalians ever. Thus, they were able to name it as a new genus and species, Opistheomimus gregori, and they were able to study it extremely well because they were able to CT scan the specimen. In fact, it's, I think they CT scanned it with multiple machines at multiple facilities. Cool. But they really went in on it. This is a little reptile. Total length is estimated to be about 16 centimeters or about six inches, which is much smaller than modern day tuataras, which are bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, they're decent-sized reptiles. During the Jurassic, there were lots of rhynchocephalians. Finding one of these in the Morrison Formation is not a big surprise. They came in varying sizes, also habitats. There were land dwellers and aquatic rhynchocephalians. The authors note that this one's skeletal proportions and everything look pretty typical of land-dwelling reptiles. Its small size, plus some of the features of its teeth and skull, lead them to suggest it was probably eating bugs and other invertebrates. And another fun note, they named it after a museum volunteer, Joseph Greger, who did a lot of work preparing the specimen. That's neat. A few other notable implications of this new species. One, they point out that it's not particularly closely related to other rhynchocephalians from the Morrison Formation, so it increases the known diversity from this particular time and place. And in fact, they note that the Morrison Formation has a pretty wide variety of rhynchocephalians in terms of size and habit and diet. This just increases that further, which is especially interesting since at the end of the Jurassic, this group of, of reptiles experiences a major decline. Yeah. So this is right before this group really starts to dwindle. Uh, a lot of the niches that they formerly took up would be taken over by squamates, by lizards and snakes as they are today. And the other thing that they note is that, uh, so modern-day tuatars have a weird jaw structure. Uh, they move their jaw back and forth like a saw blade <laughs> while they're eating things. This ancient species has some features that are similar to that. 
So it might be a hint at the early stages in the evolution of that unique to Atara uh, and later Rhynchocephalian jaw structure. Yeah. So all in all, it is an, a really nicely preserved specimen. So they were able to describe it in detail and give it a name. But now that it's here, it will probably help to contribute to future studies of Rhynchocephalian evolution of the diversity of the group, and perhaps even of the decline of the group over time. Very neat. It is always nice to get more info on kind of enigma groups like the Tuatara, where it's not so much that like we just don't understand the Tuatara, but there's just only the or couple of species. So we don't have a ton that we can compare them with. We can't take a look at the diverse group and see what the DNA... We've only got what's left. So it makes parsing out a lot of their history and the wider story for that group tricky. So it's always nice when we can get another glimpse into the history of a group that's kind of a a standalone or standout group today. Yeah, and especially since Tuatars are super cool. I love Tuatars so much. Learning about their ancient cousins is always fun. They're neat. Well, I don't have a segue from that news, but in my first news, I made a Wizard of Oz reference. Sure. And so my next news has heart. Hmm. Specifically, it is a fossilized heart of a placoderm. All right. Okay, that makes up for that ham-handed segue. (laughs) (laughs) This is research by Kate Trinastic et al. in Science, and the article is by Michelle Starr in Science Alert. So placoderms, we've talked about them in a previous episode. Episode 29, in fact. These were the armored fish that were some of the earliest jawed vertebrates. So animals with a backbone and a moving mouth, a mouth that opened and closed like ours does. Yeah, the placoderms include such famous members as Dunkleosteus. Yes. This is important because the origin and the early history of jawed vertebrates involve some major anatomical changes. The skeleton and soft tissue had to adjust to now having a mouth that functioned this way. This this didn't just change the face of animals, but the overall anatomy. Yeah, when you can start chomping stuff, that means a lot of differences in lifestyle and habit, and that means the body has to change. And you have to power this now mobile jaw. That's true. So it is a big deal for the anatomy of early vertebrates, but... We can look at the skeletons. We don't often get info on what soft tissue changes went along with those jaws. This study looks at a specimen of arthrodire placoderm. That's a group of placoderms that has 3D preserved soft tissue organs. Cool. Yeah. This specimen is from the late Devonian, so 380 million years ago, and was found in the Gogo Formation in Western Australia. They used neutron beams and synchrotron X-ray imaging. To beam the fossil to the lab, presumably. (laughs) This was so that they could study these organs without destroying them. Yeah. Because finding fossilized organs is extremely rare. They were also able to look at the bones of the animal. This gave them a full image of this fossil bones, but a detailed inside and out look at the organs, and what they had was a 3D, so in all dimensions, it wasn't flattened like many soft tissue fossils are, a mineralized heart, thick-walled stomach, and a bilobed two-part liver. Cool. 
This is the only known example of this kind of preservation in this group of placoderms. Yeah, yeah. Internal organs like this have been preserved similarly in fish fossils before. In fact, I'm feeling nostalgic. I think the first or one of the first articles I ever wrote back in my journalism days was about a fossilized fish heart. Yes, yes. But placoderms, we don't get that. And this is very important because placoderms are some of the first, if not the earliest, jawed vertebrates. Mm -hmm. So they are really important for learning about that early evolution of jaws. And they found some interesting things. Uh, first, well, yeah, you already told us right? about the interesting They found organs. <laughs> they found interesting things about said organs. Go on. Uh, the heart was a flat S-shaped heart. Huh. Yep. It was made up of two chambers, a smaller chamber sitting atop a larger one. They were able to note things like the atrium, the ventricles, the outflow tract, like the different parts of the heart. So they're able to get a really detailed look at how this heart is set up. They noted it was decently separated from the liver and other abdominal lower body organs. So it was further up in the body. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just in the organ group, which was notable. This shows some of the earliest evidence of repositioning of the heart in jawed vertebrates. Yeah, which is what we see today. Yes. That's how our bodies are, just, are, are set up. Exactly. Which could likely be in association with the evolution of the neck that started coming along with having a jawed face. Mm -hmm. That you started having to distinguish your head from the body because now you're using it differently. They noted it was more advanced than they thought it would be. That the heart was a more advanced, more functional heart. You know, a more high octane heart, I guess you could say. One of the quotes described it as that the heart was in their mouth and under their gills. That it was right up there. Hmm. Which is something they see in sharks. Okay. A similar setup to sharks. So it's a heart very similar to modern day active predators. Yeah. And that's notable for how early this is in jawed vertebrate evolution. They also noted that it had a large liver, that bilobe. So it came in two kind of arms. The liver was large, likely to help them with buoyancy, which we also see in sharks. Yeah, yeah. Sharks have oil-filled livers to help them stay buoyant in the water. That oil is less dense than water, so it, it helps them from sinking. And they noted, and this is going to sound super weird, that it didn't have a lung. Okay, right, yeah. sure. Which fish. is important because we do have relatives of early bony fish lineages, like lungfish, that have lungs formed from the swim bladder, which is how bony fish control their buoyancy, a gas sac that helps them control their floatability. Many of them have turned that into a functional lung, and it's been questioned, is this something that was ancestral to bony fish? Right. Like Did they have those to start with. Mm-hmm. And they don't see any evidence of any such structure in here. Okay. So that's must be that's likely something that evolved later on in fish, not in the earliest jawed fish. Well, that's all very exciting to see. It's it's it is never boring to get organs preserved, especially from things back in the Paleozoic era, because it is always a key data point in our understanding of the evolution of early organisms. Absolutely. So yeah, that, that one specimen is going to continue to teach us about early fish physiology in, for sure, many studies to come. Yeah, it's, it's studies like this that make me wish I knew soft tissue and could really <laughs> appreciate 
Yeah. Because so, they'd mention things like, it has this feature. I was like, oh, neat. Oh, that sure sounds exciting. Boy, uh, atriums and stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whenever we find soft tissue, it it is always a big deal, regardless of what group. Yeah. This is just a very early group, so that's exciting. Well, that's some good news. Indeed. Which means we can wrap up our news section. We can wrap up the first section of our episode and move on to the main discussion. Ants. Ants. What are they? How does one be an ant? And what are some of the crazy ants that exist in this world? After the break. All right, so ants. Ants. The topic of ants is a big one. There are lots and lots and lots of ants. So many ants. Just just whatever, however many you think there are, it's more than that. But to start off simply, ants are insects. That's true. Ants are six-legged arthropods. Three body segments, three pairs of legs, antennae, all the insect stuff. Yes. Specifically, they're insects within the hymenoptera. Mm-hmm. which include your bees, your wasps, and your ants. They are in the family Formicidae, and they are characterized from the other hymenopterans by elbowed antenna. Yeah, they have that cool joint yeah. kind of in the antenna. That little pink, that little, little corner. And they have a node called a petiole, which is kind of their waist area between the body and the abdomen, the rear end. Mm-hmm. That little extra little boop, that ants have right between thorax and abdomen yeah so if you've ever seen an ant and they have that little fancy waist that's specific to ants but then otherwise they're pretty standard for an insect not too much crazy going on just in general other than that but they are massively important to the ecosystems that they're found in which is basically all of them pretty much everyone they are found pretty much worldwide Minus Antarctica and a couple of islands. Ironically. (laughs) Right? Someone really dropped the ball on the PR team for that one. And they are extremely diverse and numerous. There are roughly, and you'll see different numbers as the estimate has changed over time. So, you know, a few years ago, the estimate of species has shifted. But the most recent one I found in papers is about 15,700 species of ant, roughly. So about three times as many species of ants as there are species of mammals. Yep. And it is expected that there are many more that we have yet to discover. I saw one estimate that said that there's probably a little bit more than 20,000, like 22,000 actually on Earth. Yeah. Insects are easy to overlook. Mm Mm-hmm. But one number that I feel like really puts it into perspective, this is a recent study, and it is one study, so I'm sure people could come along and adjust these estimates. But one study aimed to look at how many ants, like individual ants, are on the planet. And they studied many different ants across different ecosystems, collecting them and getting a sample estimate and figuring out roughly how many ants there are across different habitats, across different regions. And they came up with a number that on Earth right now, there should be roughly 20 quadrillion ants. That is a 20 with 15 zeros behind it. 20 quadrillion. That's a lot of ants. (laughs) That is 
going to make roughly 12 megatons of ant biomass, dry carbon biomass. That is too much ant. Yep. That is more than the combined biomass of wild birds and wild mammals Mm -hmm. and about a fifth of the biomass of humans. Right. (laughs) Ants are a big deal on this planet. They are hugely important. They are ecosystem shapers Mm -hmm. doing all different kinds of jobs. Some simple ones like aerating soil and removing dead material and, and waste products from the environment, you know, cleaning But there are plenty of other ants that actually shape the ecosystem around them, are habitat engineers. So ants really do. There was one quote that said, insects are the little things that make the world run. And ants really took that to heart (laughs) and just drive ecosystems that they are in, even though they are extremely tiny. Yeah. Well, they manage, even though they're super tiny, they manage to be among the most important herbivores or carnivores, or scavengers, or source of food in most ecosystems that they inhabit. Exactly. Now, as we said, they are basically worldwide. They are distributed unevenly across the planet. You'll find higher densities in some places rather than others. One that you'd expect is the tropics. Mm -hmm. They tend to be more densely populated and more diverse in the tropics. In some areas, in some tropical areas, comprising 15 to 20% of the animal biomass Jeez. in the tropics. <laughs> it's very numerous there. They become less common in human habitats, obviously, but then they are also surprisingly abundant in forests, which that makes sense, but arid regions. I was wondering. They do very well in arid regions. I feel like just anecdotally, I've seen a lot of documentaries that show desert ants. Yeah, that was one, the study that looked to total the number, found a surprising peak in arid regions. That's pretty cool, because usually arid regions, we expect lower diversity. Yes. uh, Between species, but also within specific groups. Yes, exactly. Ants do very well in these environments. And one of the reasons for this success, and, you know, from numbers to habitats to diversity of species comes down to one of the things they are most famous for, probably the thing they are most famous for, is that they are cooperative, that they form communities, and that they're able to complete tasks that would be seemingly impossible for such small creatures, but because they work as a group, they can accomplish and succeed in areas that other insects might not be able to. Yeah, 20 quadrillion ants can get a lot of work done. (laughs) Yes, exactly. If you put 20 quadrillion ants in a room with 20 quadrillion typewriters, <laughs> who knows what will happen? <laughs> they will write all literature that has ever been written. All ants live in colonies. This is a feature of ants. Which is pretty cool because even a lot of other groups that are famously social groups have solitary species. Exactly. There are bees that are solitary and so on. Yes, when we talk about these colonies, we were talking about eusociality. We did a whole episode on it. Episode 111. And so we'll be touching on it throughout this episode. But if you want the nitty gritties about how does that evolve and how does that differ between groups, check that episode out. But ants are really good at this. They are they kind of the, the ones who have mastered it. And it is ubiquitous across the group. There is not a single ant that we know of that is truly solitary. There are more and less eusocial, like some that are more solitary. They send out individuals to go get food instead of as a group. But in general, they all come back to a group home. Yeah. And when we talk about eusocial groups, this isn't a group 
like a herd of elephants or even like a group of primates, eusociality is this complex, highly structured caste system that you see in ants and termites and bees and naked mole rats for yes. some reason. Yep. <laughs> uh, and ants, ha- like you said, are basically fully dedicated to this this or something very similar to it kind of lifestyle. Absolutely. So the cat system that they have means that basically every species of ant consists of some mixture of sterile females that either do the jobs of workers or soldiers or other odd and in jobs that different species have come up with. Right. So within the colony, they might be moving materials back and forth. They might be excavating further rooms. They might be defending the colony against other ants or intruders. The basic jobs of just maintaining the colony day to day. Precisely. Then you'll have fertile females, which are the queens. Now, it is typically thought that, you know, when we think of ants and bees that there's the queen but there are many ant species that have multiple queens Mm -hmm. so they have at least a queen or many queens right and correct me if i'm wrong but the queen isn't always that giant swollen enormous ant that fights sigourney weaver at the end of the movie yeah like queens come in a variety of different shapes and sizes absolutely uh you know you have queen insects like termite queens which are immobile giant egg-laying machines, but there's many ant queens that are actually quite active within the colony. Mm-hmm. Others may be stationary in the queen chamber where they are just laying eggs, while others may be actually participating in moving around the colony. Some you might not even be able to tell by looking that it is a queen unless you know what to look for. Yeah, I remember seeing a display somewhere with bees where... You could look into the beehive and they had the queen marked, but mm-hmm. like there was a little blue dot on the queen because otherwise you wouldn't be able to tell the queen from the rest of the yeah, bees. Because she just has a slightly longer abdomen. Mm-hmm. But if you know to look for it, you can see it. But if you don't, she just looks like a bee. You'll also have fertile males, which are often called drones. And these, as well as seasonally, you'll typically have winged male and females that are part of the mating of the colony that mate and spread new colonies to areas. Right. You can fly off and start a colony of your own. And one of the key things about this caste system is that there's a division of labor. Like you're saying, the sterile workers are doing jobs the queen is not doing, while the queen is focusing on reproduction, while males, the drones, typically breed then die. Like, their job is to pass on genetic information, and that's it. This is really the key to that eusociality, is that you're socially working together, but you're doing separate jobs so that you're delegating between the different groups and castes of your society. Yes. And in many cases, it isn't just that an ant knows that its job is X, Y, Z. They are physically, anatomically, physiologically different. Absolutely. A soldier ant will often look different from the other ants in the colony because it's a soldier. Exactly. And sometimes it is dramatic. Yeah. Like... Ants that where the soldier cast is two, three, four, five times the size of the worker class. Yeah, I've heard of some species where the soldiers can't eat. Mm-hmm. So the workers have to feed the soldiers so the soldiers don't die. Yeah, because the soldiers' mouth parts are purely weaponized now. Yes, they're not good for eating food. It's just a weapon. You can't use swords as a chopstick, so you just <laughs> have to fight and then be fed. Some ants have the worker, the soldier. There are others that have three casts with small, medium, large to do different jobs. Ones that take care of the nest and the eggs 
and so they don't need to be very big. Bigger ones that do the building and the gathering of food, large ones that do the protecting. Basically, any combination of cats you can think of, there's probably an ant that fits it. It is crazy how diverse they have gotten and how many different models of caste system have evolved and been lost. There are groups that have lost mm-hmm. castes that they ancestrally had. Yeah, and this, this lifestyle is probably one of the most important keys to that diversity that we were just talking about, that ants aren't just evolving in their anatomy or in their behavior. The eusocial colony system is something that can evolve and diversify. And it's also one of the reasons why you get just so many ants that preposterous number is because there's never just one ant. Yeah, exactly. They are acting as these colonial organisms almost, what are often called super organisms Mm -hmm. because of how well they work together and how they solve tasks, not as many individuals doing the task, but as a group doing the task. Yes, you'll hear the term. It's a a very sci-fi term, but the term hive mind. Yeah. And while ants are not, you know, robotically programmed to all think the same thing at the same time, They are extremely good at cooperative tasks. Well, there is this mentality, and it's I've seen it talked about as like a colonial brain, Mm. that when they face a task, the way each ant reacts to the situation and communicates with other ants gets the task done surprisingly efficiently without having to have a colony-wide communication system. You know, they don't have intercoms, they don't have radios. They don't have a psychic link like is often shown in sci-fi. Right. And the queen is not directing them. Right. That which is, is all, which is a common mis- misrepresentation that the queen is just sitting there telling everybody what to do. Yeah, that she controls the colony, which is because we called it a queen. Right. And monarchies <laughs> control, like that's, that's a ruling term that we've put on this insect. But the queen lays eggs and can be usurped. Like, if a queen's not doing what the queen should be doing, there are many species that are well known to kill that queen so that they can replace her with a better queen. Mm-hmm. Like, the queen is not in charge. She's arguably the most important ant in the colony. Right. She's making the baby ants. Exactly. But she's not the one running the colony. The colony runs itself. Right. This happens through so many complex variable and minute and still being studied ways of interacting that there's no way for us to cover it here but ants are not mindlessly controlled by the hive nor are they robotically responding in only one way an ant colony is dynamic and they can make delegated decisions by having the colony vote basically Mm -hmm. if there's two places to live the more ants that decide we're living here the whole colony will go there (laughs) So they are able to make complex decisions and solve problems that no individual ant would have the mental capacity nor physical ability to do. One of the ways that this really works well to their advantage is a concept of amplification, that when one ant sees something, a piece of food is the famous example, and says, oh, food, I'll take a bit and I'll go back, they will leave a scent trail going to the food so that they can find their way back to the nest, but then they will leave a solid scent trail or a different kind of scent trail back from the food to say, this trail, food. That's what this scent pattern or scent chemical signature means. And then the next ant that finds it goes, well, we'll see if this trail is legit. 
and they find, oh, it is, I will also lay down a trail. The trail is now doubly strong. And the stronger the trail the, will attract the more ants. So a passive system. They don't have to try to win over and be like, come on, come on, help me get this food. If another ant passes the trail, right, they will be drawn to it, which will then this, draw more to it. This trail is peer-reviewed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It is passively drawing the ants to the best source of food. Because if an ant comes to the food and goes, then they will go seek out other food. So the most optimum path, the most optimum food source will be chosen passively just by the way they work. And it amplifies with the group working as a whole so that now you get those trails of ants and you're wondering how in the world did you find this food all the way over here? Well, it's because one ant was wandering around, found it and made the trail back that slowly but surely got stronger and better would have gotten refined by other ants being like, well, I found it by a shorter mean. Mm-hmm. And that's going to attract more ants because it's happening faster. And not only can the behavior be extremely flexible, the colony structure among ants varies wildly. We talked about the hierarchy and the caste system, but it can also vary in size and how the colony is constructed. You know, you have the ant hills that you think of, but there are many ants that don't make a hill. They just go under something. There are ones that specialize in dead wood, that specialize in leaf litter, that only live in trees. There are some that do not make any form of nest. And these colonies can range in size from literally just a handful, like just dozens of ants. For many of your larger species, they tend to have smaller colonies, to millions of ants. One of the best examples is what's known as a super colony. There are some species of ants that are able to create colonies so large they take up miles. Right. Basically multiple colonies that work together as an even bigger colony. Yeah. Because typically, if you have a colony, mating time comes around, they start producing winged males and females. They fly out and they mate with other winged males and females. And then most of them die. And a few now fertilized females will land somewhere, dig a hole start making a nest. Yes. Once they do that, that colony is technically a competitor to the original colony. So, and ants will know what colony they came from and they can recognize each other. So if an ant wanders over from another colony, the ants in this colony are going to go, no, no, you don't belong here. Yes. Like this is our food. That's why we sent you over there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You go eat that food. And this is especially true for ants of other species. Like ants of differing species just generally don't get along. Some ants though... When they spread out to new colonies, when they make new colonies, they don't show that aggression toward each other. The famous species is the Argentine ant, which is from Argentina. These ants have a very unique trait, specifically the groups of these ants that were introduced, that became invasive outside of Argentina. That population, for whatever reason, lacked a lot of the aggressive tendencies toward new colonies that were formed by the by this same species. So they were able to spread, forming new colonies, but never fighting with each other, only fighting with other species of ants. Mm-hmm. So they prospered and outcompeted many native ants. And now there are six effectively continental-sized super colonies across the globe. And these super colonies, these continental super colonies, still recognize each other. So if you take a ant from Africa and drop it here in North America from 
African super colony to North American super colony, they will still recognize that ant as one of their own. Mm-hmm. They have very similar genetic and chemical profiles so that they recognize an Argentine invasive ant as an Argentine invasive ant, no matter where it's from or where it goes. And it means that these ants are basically a global super ant colony. Yeah. They're not working together to take on global tasks. Right. They don't communicate across the continent or across the ocean or anything like that. But if you were to see them bump into each other, regardless of where it happens, they're going to cooperate or at least ignore one another so that they do not compete and hurt their own species. Mm -hmm. And this means that they've been devastating local ant species in all the different continents and all the different areas they've been introduced. This makes them the most populous known animal society on Earth, by far. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yep. They put our global community to shame in numbers, at least. Yeah, they get along when they meet each other yes. from opposite continents. Yeah, no, arguably also in <laughs> politics and, and, and diplomacy, they also put us to shame. But on the opposite end, you do have ants with smaller colonies. These often tend to be your bigger ants. Most ants are teeny tiny. You know, think of an ant. Yep, about that big. But other ants, like bulldog ants, which are famous ant species from Australia, a group of ants, which is genus Myrmicia. And these can range from 8 to 40 millimeters, so up to 4 centimeters, which is about an inch and a half and some change. And they function in a very much opposite way. While you have the smaller ants that tend to swarm and work as a large group, these are more solitary. They are individualistic hunters, where a single ant is killing prey by itself and bringing it back to the nest. And this is also shown in their behavior and that they're very aggressive toward everything. Like they're very famous for being extremely bitey. They'll even jump when agitated and leap at what they're attacking. They have strong bites, painful stings, uh, which is another note that many, many ants have stings. By far the most famous of those being the bullet ant, which is another large species of ant. These are Amazonian that get to be once again, like up to an inch and a half long and are once again, fairly solitary hunters but they have what is often rated as the most painful insect sting on the planet. Mm -hmm. With And this was from a medical paper that I read. Pain that can last up to 24 hours after the sting. <laughs> like, if it stings you, it's likely the next day is going to be a bad day. <laughs> that is unnecessary, yes. Ants. This is a neurotoxin mm -hmm. that can also have other symptoms like fever, trembling, cold sweats, like nausea. It can it can actually mess you up a bit, but is mainly used for them to hunt with, which is one note that I feel is important to make. And probably many people are aware, but since most ants that plenty of us deal with, like in our backyards, especially if you're living here in North America, ants are typically seen as scavengers, you know, picking up crumbs, picking up random bits and many ants absolutely are just foragers right they just go looking for any food they're omnivorous very often they'll eat meat they'll eat plants but many ants like the two just mentioned are carnivores mm -hmm. they are predators they actively hunt insects but also just other animals yep and probably the most famous of the groups of ants that do that are army ants Mm -hmm. These are extremely specialized predatory ants. And unlike our two big examples, the bulldog and the bullet and others like them that hunt as, you know, like tigers that hunt individualistically. Right. These are armies that go hunting as armies. Yeah, this is the classic 
image of a swarm of ants overtaking a larger animal. Exactly. These will often sometimes be called legionary ants or marabunta and is not one single group. This applies to over 200 different species. This army ant behavior, which is sometimes called legionary behavior or army ant syndrome. (laughs) And they have some key features that makes an army ant. There are three traits that they have that sets them apart from other ants behaviorally. One, they don't forage alone. They forage as a group in what are known as raids. Gotcha. Buddy system. Yes. Most ants send out scouts. So whenever you like see an ant just wandering across your countertop, that's a scout ant typically, meaning they are out looking for food. And when they find it, they will implore that system I mentioned earlier. They'll say, ah, food, leave a scent trail. I'll go get more ants. And then we will work as a group to get this food. Mm -hmm. But we go looking for it individually because we can spread out more easily. Army ants don't do that. When they go looking for food, they go in force from the beginning. They don't send out scouts. They say, all right, we're heading north. Anything that is in our way northward is food now. Yeah, we're going to, if we find it, we get it, we take it back. Yes, and they will do that. They will have their central area, and then they will go out in like a compass pattern, spread out this direction, and then come back, and then go off to the right and spread out, and come back and cover massive amounts of land and any insect, bird, reptile, mammal that gets caught and it's too small to get away is food, Mm -hmm. is torn apart, dismembered, and brought back to the nest. I saw it described one time as mass cooperative leaderless foragings, which is really puts it into perspective that there is not a leader. They just, the nest as a group starts heading in a direction. Right. There's no leader. We're just all on the same page. Yep. And then whatever's caught is brought back and then you get ready for the next raid. Another thing that makes them unique is they do not form nests. These are strictly nomadic ants. All right. They will form temporary structures sometimes out of their own bodies where they will hang together to guard the queen and the eggs, but they are not going to build anything. Mm -hmm. They will just huddle down against a tree that just now has a bunch of ants covering it, feed in this area until there's not enough food, move somewhere else as an entire colony, Yeah. settle down again, start over. Wow. So no burrow, no nesting in the tree or anything like that. Yes, no anthill. Just the ants. Just ants. Just the army. And then finally, they have unique queens, specialized queens that are robust, is how I saw them described, and permanently wingless. They do not form winged queens like many other ants. These queens are notable for having abdomens capable of expanding to produce eggs at specific times. Okay. So they can basically go through bursts of reproduction and lay, the number I found was Three to four million eggs a month. Wow. (laughs) Just pumping them out and then stop doing that for nomadic times and for when it's not time to lay eggs. So they have specialized queens for this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. These three traits are found in all known army ants. Wow. There is not a single army ant we've discovered yet that lacks one of these. So this is what it means to be an army ant. Now, army ants are found across a number of continents, but they are distinguished as two groups in the Old World and New World, with a couple of different main subfamilies of ants in each. 
that led to the hypothesis that this behavior, this army ant behavior, evolved separately in each group. Mm-hmm. And that was held for quite some time, especially because it was suspected that they got split when Gondwana, the southern part of Pangaea, split and separated them. And that that happened before army ant behavior had developed. But more recent studies seem to indicate that it is a shared feature ancestrally between these groups. That even though army ants are not a single group, and it is not true of just every ant in these groups, but that this feature does seem to be something ancestral. You know, either the ability to or the tendency to evolve army ant behavior is something unique to this group ancestrally. Army ants are a fun example in a group of animals with just tons of examples of all sorts of stuff of the ways that ants can get very specialized, but that certain specializations can be very widespread. Yes. There's a lot of repetition with ants. There's a lot of various groups that each become very widespread. There's a lot of specialization, and it's fun to note that there is specialization in how they behave, how they live, what their queens do, all those different aspects of the colony can become specialized, can evolve in different ways. Yes, exactly. You have a extremely complex multi-part machine and you can tweak every single part of that machine. Mm -hmm. And it can give you new opportunities and new abilities and new behaviors depending on which part is tweaked and how you change it. And some get real weird. This is one of my favorite groups of ants. This is now just going to be a rapid fire of awesome ants <laughs> until we get to the break. Our excuse is that we are sampling the diversity of ants to give you an idea of what the whole variety of ants is with some examples. But really, it's just so that we can mention some cool ants. Oh, yeah. Just to geek out a bit. <laughs> one of my favorite groups are the weaver ants. Mm-hmm. These form nests out of leaves in trees while still on the branch. And they do that by folding the leaves over each other and then using their young. Baby ants are larvae that have to pupate, that have to go through a metamorphosis stage like most insects. So ants start out as little maggoty things. Yep, grubs. Little grubs, and then they become a little chrysalis type thing, the pupa, and then become an ant. Yes, and many of them in that pupa stage form a cocoon with silk. Mm -hmm. They wrap themselves up like moth caterpillars do, but... Weaver ants will use their larvae and they give up all their silk to sew the nest together. The adults will hold the larvae, tap their head on a leaf. Oh, that's right. Triggers the baby to produce silk. And then they use them like a glue stick to weave silk between the leaves and form it together. Man, talk about a cast system. Right? That the, the pupae are... Tool, literal yes. tools for the adults to use. Which is why they're my favorite, one of my favorite groups of ants, because they're on their way to being tyranids. Right. <laughs> you also have other specialists like the leafcutter ants, which are extremely famous, and mm-hmm. many people now know that they are cutting the leaves to feed to fungus in their gardens and their nests. Yeah, they curate a nest of fungi. And they feed it and they weed it. They will remove invasive fungi that they don't want in there and they build it for food. Yes, exactly. Something I didn't know and that I'm not sure is as widely known is that this is not a species. There are many species of leafcutter ants, 47 species at least. Oh, wow. That cut leaves and feed fungi to eat off of. Differing levels of complexity. Some are obligate, some are faculative in that they can do it sometimes some can't do anything else Mm -hmm. some have fungus that is 
domesticated and only lives in that nest. Yeah. Aren't there some ants that will carry around certain bacteria on their body that acts as a killer to invasive fungi in the nest? Yes, that acts as an an antiseptic and a, a antibacterial f- yeah. material. They have a symbiotic relationship with a bacteria, which helps further their symbiotic relationship with the fungus that they grow in their colony. And because their fungus is only found in their colony, when they want to start new colonies, they have to send a piece of the fungus with the new queens Yeah, to seed their garden. <laughs> and that's an example of ants farming. Yep. By cultivating vegetation, you know, in the in the broad sense of the term, vegetation with mushrooms, with fungi. But there are also, of course, ants that farm livestock, kind of. Yeah, and that is super common among ants. There are many ants, weaver ants do this. Tons of other species of ants will find true bugs, the ones that have the piercing mouth parts. Mm-hmm. Things like aphids. Aphids are usually the example that comes to my mind. Yeah, this is the group Hemiptera, which includes aphids, but also scale bugs and mealy bugs. Mm. A lot of your plant-sucking insects that go up to a plant, stab it with their mouth parks, suck out the juices, and farmers hate them. Right. Ants will farm these by letting them feed on the plant, and then there are many specialized species of these insects that produce honeydew, which is a concentrated sugary extraction from the plant material that's excess for what the that insect needs and they'll just produce a little droplet usually from their butts Mm -hmm. or somewhere nearby they'll some of them have somewhere in the butt region well many of them have specialized pores to give it to the ants (laughs) that this is a special ant tube there's a caterpillar feeding tube yes i have specialized (laughs) tubes for it to excrete just for the ant and it will only excrete when the ants tap it yep so the ants will graze their cattle and then milk them. It's called milking. <laughs> and they will they will protect them from parasites and from predators and even move them when one plant gets too wilted. Yeah, ants are such a part of their ecosystem in many places that other species have adapted to the ants. Yep. As much as they've adapted to the trees and stuff. Yep. You also just get some really bizarre ants. Like, actually, this does start seeming like sci-fi honeypot ants where they have the special they choose the largest workers mm-hmm. and they start feeding them nectar and and water and sugary liquids and then their abdomen swells and that worker just hangs from the ceiling now and is a giant honeypot that the workers will just come and go hey i need a little bit of food and they'll vomit up some from their crop they're sure. not their stomach a special holding area it's called trophallaxis feeding by vomiting and then they'll take a little bit of it and go about their day and that's just what those ants do in the job they just act as what they are called living larders oh man right wow i also know because i remember this from animal planets the most extreme (laughs) where the ants that are in asia somewhere that explode yes yes and if i remember correctly it's that they have Organs within their body that contain chemicals that if they rupture the organ and the chemicals mix, the ant bursts. Yes, basically. As a battle tactic when fighting against other ants or other threats. Yeah, they have two poison-filled mandibular glands that run along the body and they can just flex their abdomen, pop those, and it spreads out this sticky, toxic goo across the battlefield. Yeah. Just poisoning whoever is attacking them or who they are attacking potentially 
The genus that's famous for this is Colobopsis, and they're found in Malaysia and Brunei. And they are not the only species. There are many other species in this group known with a similar self-destructive defense tactic. Right. So exploding ants. We mentioned last episode that there are ants that are known to glide. Yep. These are ants that live in trees, and if they fall off a branch... They can flatten out their bodies and then direct their glide towards the trunk so that they can crawl back up without having to fall all the way down to the ground. Absolutely. In another recording, which isn't out yet, but we did mention shield-headed ants. Oh, yeah, we sure did. Yeah. (laughs) Stay tuned. Stay tuned for something spooky. (laughs) Phragmosis is a behavior seen in many animals of using part of their body to block as a barrier, often to a burrow. And right. are these the ants with the big shield heads? They have shield heads. Now, some have it just in the queen. The genus Blepharidata has queens with a specialized flattened shield head and actually seems to secrete a fibrous material that builds up the shield. And then she can use that to block the entrance to the nesting chamber, to the egg-laying chamber. Hmm. So if the colony is breached, she can shut the door to the queen's room and not allow anyone in. Cool. So the queen is the queen, but also the guard to the queen. Yes, exactly. Convenient. (laughs) There's another genus, Cephalodes, where all cast, queen and workers, all have this head morphology, and they can block just the entrances to the colony all around. (laughs) Without exposing their eyes, antenna, or mandibles. Just that shield top of the head. Cool. And then, of course, there are the ants, and I don't remember which ones they are, but I bet Will knows. The ones that build structures out of their bodies. Mm -hmm. That will build rafts or build ladders. And essentially form themselves into the tools that the colony needs to accomplish the things it needs to do. Yeah, army ants are known for this. Mm -hmm. When they form their litters and when they need to jump a gap. The group that's really famous for this is fire ants. Okay, that's what I thought. Fire ants, which are the invasive ones here in North America that have come up from South America through our trade. Fire ants are super good at this. Mostly what they are famous for is forming those rafts. Right. They live in areas that flood. And when that floods, the colony will just leave the nest and then form a raft of ants with the queen and eggs in the middle and the raft made out of ant bodies. And what often is portrayed is like, and these are sacrificial ants, but they're not. They take turns on the bottom of the raft. So they don't drown. They rotate who's on the bottom of the raft. So the whole colony just makes it. And when they bump into something, the raft just offloads itself onto whatever it is. Yeah, which is so incredible because obviously, yeah, if individual ants got washed away in a flood, that's probably the end of the colony. Yes. That's probably the end of most of those ants, and even the ones who survive are very unlikely to find each other. But yeah, they just all hold on to each other and take turns so that basically the whole colony survives. And the way they move and they function when they are forming these globular structures is really bizarre. There's been tons of studies on it, and they found that they react more like a viscous fluid than many individual parts that you can pour them out of a cup and it will pour like molasses as the ants cling to each other and the cup as if they are a viscous fluid acting like molecules. Yep. And in that line of thinking, if you were to try to sink the raft, the water tension, the surface tension causes the raft to just roll up on itself. 
and they just create an ant bubble under the water where the inside is still water free because of surface tension. <laughs> and then when you stop pushing them down, they'll just come back up and still be afloat. Wow. You also, can't sink this raft. <laughs> probably a good way to get bitten by a whole bunch of fire ants. Oh, yeah. My dad grew up in Louisiana <laughs> and he said that every now and then it would flood and fire ants would raft around. He said bumping into one of those rafts is the worst day you can think of. Yeah, I can imagine. You're just suddenly covered with a colony's worth of fire ants, <laughs> which are called fire ants because their stings and their bites are incredibly agitating. Yes. They're called fire ants for much the same reason that bullet ants are called bullet ants. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we named them after extremely dangerous, painful things. We've been named after how they feel. <laughs> uh, the blog post that goes after this episode, which you can find a link to in the episode description, will have pictures and links to videos. Yeah, there's tons of really great videos out there that take quick, you know, 10 minute looks into these various ant species and ant way of life that will cover it much more better and with visuals and a little bit extra meat for each one. So please check those out. We are not able to do nearly the credit that all these ants no, deserve. We, we are not going to list all 15,700 species of ants. <laughs> It'll be like the, the time. <laughs> geological time scale. So we'll yes. just say an ant a second. <laughs> but this is a idea mm -hmm. of the global diversity of ants. Listeners, we fully encourage you, if we didn't mention your favorite ant, let us know. Tell us what your favorite is. Absolutely. Put it in a public place like on Facebook or in the Discord where other people can comment. Yeah. And to wrap up this section of the episode, we have one other weird ant, Nothomermesia, which is also known as the dinosaur ant or dawn ant. Okay. I have not heard of the dinosaur ant. Yeah. Nothomermesia macrops is the only species in this genus. They live in South Australia. Very rare. These are medium-sized ants, you know, so they get to like half an inch long. And they are notable for lacking many ant-like qualities that we expect ants to have today, but sharing many qualities with what we expect ancestral ants to have had. Okay. So this is why it's known as the dinosaur ant. This ant seems to be one of the groups today that has retained some of the more ancestral, quote-unquote, primitive traits mm -hmm. of ants. They are still social, but their colonies are like 50 to 100 individuals. Okay, so small colonies. Itty bitty. Like, and they're not giant ants, like you said, will often have small colonies. Exactly. These are small ants with small colonies. Precisely. They are strictly nocturnal. They are solitary forager, foragers, so they go looking for food by themselves. They'll look for insect prey, but also take honeydew from other those little insects that we mentioned earlier. They are mainly visual in their navigation which is not typical. There are some ants that have very good eyesight. Bulldog ants are known for that. I think jack jumpers are another group that are really famous for having good eyesight. But other ants are focusing very much on their scent and taste senses. These ants, as far as we can tell, don't use chemical communication while foraging. So they don't lay down those scent trails. They hmm. don't communicate to be like, hey, food's over here. They'll use alarm signals, chemical alarm signals, but that seems to be about it. Interesting. So they lack the complex chemical communication that is so well known among other ants. And they seem to lack the caste system of different kinds of workers. Their workers are monomorphic. They have one form doing all the different jobs. Right. So they will go foraging. They will take care of the nest. They will take care of the eggs. And it seems that they just take turns. There's not even like a group that stays in one and a group that stays outside. It's everyone does every job. Yeah, yeah. 
So you have still a fertile queen and infertile workers, but the workers just do all the jobs and all look the same. Yeah. This is one of those cases, and we've, we see this with a lot of groups of life today. We've talked about this on a bunch of other episodes of the podcast, where you have a group like ants, and you look at them and you think, wow, that is such a complex system. What would it look like along that evolutionary path, starting with something like a beetle that just does whatever by itself, and ending up with the things we have today, with eusociality, and oftentimes there is something like these ants where, oh, here is a species that is an example of what it might look like when it isn't quite as complex as we see in a lot of ants. That structure that you're describing might very well be what a lot of ancient ants were before they evolved the full eusocial complex colonies that we see today. Precisely. Which isn't to say that those ants are on their way to evolving more complex use sociality, they may be fine the way they are. Yeah. But that they might give us an indication of what a stepping stone on that path might have looked like. Yeah, that they might be mirroring what ancestral ants might have been like. Cool. And on that note, this is a perfect segue for us to take a break and then afterward talk a bit about ants in the fossil record and what we know and think we know about Ant history. Yeah, we'll look at some ancestors <laughs> after this break. The ant fossil record is actually pretty good. Uh, not continuously throughout it. There are portions where, that are better than others, but there are quite a number of fossil ants which isn't surprising because yes something like that is unlikely to fossilize but there are as we've already discussed just so many ants yeah 20 quadrillion has (laughs) pretty decent odds of getting fossilized if there are odds to be fossilized and yet one paper made that point of if ants have been common in their ecosystems we would expect their fossils to also be as relatively as common in the fossil record there have been 13 of the modern 16 subfamilies of ants identified, as well as six extinct subfamilies. Okay. Totaling about 167 genera at most recent and 760 species, and have been found, one paper listed it, which is just neat, 65 different deposits oh, across cool. the world. So they are numerous in the fossil record and still widespread and diverse. Now, they do tend to fossilize in particular ways because they are small insects uh, with delicate exoskeletons. You tend to find them either in amber as imprints or we do have ichnofossils, trace fossils. Oh, cool. Yeah, amber makes a ton of sense. We did amber back in episode 62 and we talked about ants back then, I'm sure. Absolutely. That's the way we typically think of insects getting fossilized. Absolutely. And that's by far the most common and famous way to find ant fossils and in truth most of the ant fossils we'll be discussing are from amber yeah makes sense these do though have a bias they tend to be ants that live in trees Mm -hmm. or forage around trees like that's where amber comes. that's where amber comes from so you're going to be finding ones that are either in forested or 
on the trees themselves. Right. Those desert ants that are oh so common today are unlikely to get caught in amber. Yes, and subterranean ants, mm-hmm. uh, which is a decent portion of ant behavior. This also tends to only collect smaller ants. You know, typically get the larger species of ants. So like 10 millimeters or less. So pretty itty bitty. And this is very likely in part just because smaller ants are going to have a harder time freeing themselves. And that, that's another uh, uh, bias we see with amber. And we talked about that in the amber episode, I'm sure, that amber tends to get things of a small enough size that the amber can fully surround it and that it's not strong enough to get out of the sap. Absolutely. The resin. They also made the point that by far the majority of ants found in amber are the winged reproductives. Okay. So either winged males or females, you know, drones or queens that lend in the resin and get stuck, which is also very much true for imprint fossils. Okay. So imprint fossils, when something falls on sediment and then gets buried between layers of sediment and leaves a imprint of its body behind. Right. Have you ever seen a nice dragonfly fossil pressed between the sediment or leaf impressions? We can get a lot of bugs like that. Yeah. These are typically going to be lake deposits or something very similar, some water deposit. Once again, mainly preserving winged ants Interesting. that are flying and falling. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting a lot of ants walking into these situations, you know, crawling into the resin. They're flying and landing and getting stuck either in the water or in the resin, which once again does give us some biases because the imprints were noted very clearly as that being even more so the majority of ant fossils to where it's almost only winged imprints, which means if you are an ant species that doesn't use winged queens, Mm -hmm. then you're less likely to fossilize as imprints. And that's a shame because imprints typically preserve larger ant species. Yeah. So you may be missing large, only ground-dwelling ants that have queens that mate on the ground and stay crawling. But this is also where we get some of our really, really cool ant fossils. Yeah. One of the most famous, Titanomerma, is the largest ant ever known. Oh, how big? I saw a movie uh, once. <laughs> <laughs> Came out around the same time as Godzilla. All right. So these ants are just shy of 50 million years old. And as it was described in one thing, comparable in size to hummingbirds. Whoa. (laughs) That is way bigger than I thought it was going to be. (laughs) I was joking about the radioactive ant movie. Yeah, right? Today's largest ants are your driver ants. Genus Doralis or the Siafu, if you ever heard that term. These are the blind army style ants that are in Africa. These can reach... Two inches long, five centimeters. Whew, These which are to- is, that's a big ant. That's a big ant. These are today's largest ants. The species Titanomira gigantea reached, for the males, three centimeters, so 1.2 inches, and for the females, six centimeters, almost two and a half inches, Whew. with a wingspan of 15 centimeters, six inches across. Wow. This that's is a giant an ant. Ant. This is a giant ant. That is giant. <laughs> And they're interesting. They do not possess stings. They are really well preserved. So we can tell they don't have a sting, which means they likely used formic acid to spray as a defense or to kill prey, Mm. which is a thing a ton of ants do. Yeah, we see that in modern ants. Yep. If we can't sting you, I'll just spray you with acid. Yep. There's a bunch that will actively bite and then spray acid into the bite. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yep. Oh, the worst. (laughs) Which means this one 
is likely either eating fresh food, you know, so gathering like fresh greens or carnivorous. And since it seems similar to Doryalus, the Siafu, it may have been a precursor, a similar driving army style ant. So mm-hmm. it may have been predatory, but just just giant army ants. Re- now, this is also the queen. So it'd be the biggest. The sure, workers sure. probably aren't going to be as big, but still. That's still a big ant. <laughs> That's still a real big ant. That's a lot of ant. Yep. And then finally, we do find ant trace fossils, but these are going to be the nests. Right. We do have fossils of ant nests and that have been preserved. Like other ignofossils, these typically cannot be linked to the ants that made them unless Mm -hmm. you have ants in the trace fossil. Yes. To ID the species. These are also only really known from after the Mesozoic. So we don't really have anything from before the the in Cretaceous of ant colonies. There have been fossils that were ID'd as potentially that. There was one from the Jurassic that was ID'd as maybe an ant colony ichno fossil and later was dismissed. And the only one that's potentially attributable to ants that's getting into the Mesozoic is a late Cretaceous one in Utah. But we also run into the issue with these of, is this an ant colony or some other insect colony? Like, is this a termite colony? Right. Like, there's many other colony-making insects that make nests. So we do find nest trace fossils, but they are almost fully restricted to after the Cretaceous and are sometimes very hard to ID with confidence. Mm -hmm. But there are some neat ones. I found one record from the Miocene of a nest of fungus-growing Amazonian ants. Oh, cool. From Argentina. This seems to be a nest from leafcutter ants, Uh, most likely from similar genus today, but we don't know for sure what species made it, but it has a similar chamber style and a similar design, a similar layout as we see in today's leafcutters. Very interesting. So yeah, we do find some good ones and we are able to get some useful and helpful information from these trace fossils. I did find one other paper on a trace fossil that's weird. This is... I'm going to read the title as it was written on the paper. Ancient death grip leaf scars that reveal ant fungal parasitism. Whoa. (laughs) So there are tons of parasitic fungi that attack insects. Yes. These are well known now because like Planet Earth documentary that showed the fungus that causes the ant to leave the colony and then bursts out of the back of the ant's head. Yes. That was the cordyceps fungus. Although I think it's Ophiocordyceps is the technical genus absolutely it is and some of these some of these ophiocordyceps fungi not only cause the ant to leave but also cause them to climb to a plant and then grab onto it with their jaws yes giving them get to a high location so that when the fungus releases its spores they can spread much farther exactly they want them in a specific area of the forest so they can spread most efficiently and these fungi are like really specialized at this uh, there was one study that looked at a specific species of fungus in Thailand, and 97% of the hosts that the fungus attacked were one species of ant. Wow. It was very specialized, and it was a carpenter ant, and the manipulation is extreme. Like, many ants that are infected live high in the canopy, like 20 meters up, and then will be forced to climb to a narrow zone, as they called it, about 25 centimeters off the forest floor. Just about a foot. Hmm. 
off the forest floor. They want them exactly there. So they will travel meters and meters and meters to grab onto leaves in the specific area the fungus wants. Wow. And they grab onto the central vein of the leaf yeah. to hold on with their jaws and then die. And then the fungus bursts out its spore, its, its mushroom effectively, and releases its spores. Mm-hmm. They found some of those scars on a fossil leaf. Wow. The jaw-gripping scars. Oh, that's so cool. These are the leaves that are about 48 million years old from the Messel pits in Germany. Mm-hmm. And this is the first evidence of that kind of fungal attack. Very cool. Which is interesting because, just as a little side note, and I can't remember if we mentioned this in the Amber episode, we might have, but there are Amber examples of Ophiocordyceps-like fungi. Yeah. I think, I think Paleo-Ophiocordyceps. In the process of emerging from insects. I think there's a handful of insects that have been found in amber with the fungal stalks growing out of them, which is very cool and is really interesting evidence of the fungus doing that thing in the insect. But to find the bite marks on the leaf is evidence of the behavior of the host induced by the fungus. Yes. Very cool. That And it sh- seems to show that not only has this fungus been doing this to ants for a very long time, it's been doing basically the exact thing we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. Very, very similar behavior is Apparently happening. it works. Yeah. It is 50 million years of horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, speaking of the origins of behaviors, let's talk a little bit about the origins of ants. Yeah, when did ants start? So, first, ants are within Hymenoptera, and specifically... They are in the aculate, the aculate hymenopterans, which are your ants, bees, and wasps. These are the, this is the group that's famous for eusociality. Yes. So this is the eusocial insects group. Mostly there are other eusocial groups, but this is the one that is famous for it. There has been debate as to exactly who's related to who within this group. So ants, it has been agreed on for quite some time that they evolved from a wasp ancestor and decided to stop flying and be ants at some point Mm -hmm. but which wasps and what kind of wasps has been debated the most recent research i could find that looked at this group of hymenoptera and figured out who's related to who found that the apoidae which includes your bees and sphesiform wasps which are like sand wasps and mud daubers and stuff like that are a sister group with ants so ants okay and the apioids are sister to each other. So ants and bees possibly evolved from similar wasp-like ancestors. Exactly. And then your vespid wasps. These are your paper wasps, your yellow jackets, the wasp wasps. All the famous ones. Yep. Uh, What I think are often called the stinging wasps. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're sister group to the rest of the aculate hymenopterans. Okay. So it was often thought that that's where ants evolved from, but it's probably not from those wasps. It's probably from ones more similar to bees and your mud daubers and those that other group of wasps gotcha but these lineages of eusocial hymenopterans today are grouped among three different clades of solitary ectoparasitoid wasps these are the wasps that lay their eggs on another insect it hatches eats said insect Mm -hmm. as its first meal and then becomes an adult which likely means that this overall you social hymenopteran group came from an ectoparasitoid ancestor. Cool. So the wasps are where it started. Yes, indeed. And 
though ants probably did not come directly from ectoparasitoid wasps, their overall group likely did, mm. which we're still figuring out the specifics of. But so that's likely where ants originated from. Their fossil record starts about a hundred million years ago. Okay. I bet it starts in amber. Yeah, it does indeed. <laughs> and many of the earliest ants we find already seem to be very ant-like. You know, right. They seem to be eusocial. Many of them already seem to have a caste system. So the first fossil record of ants are ants. Yeah. Which is not at all surprising Mm-mm. because A, as we've discussed a bunch on the podcast, that often happens, especially with very unique specialized groups that the evolution of that group will often happen rather quickly or perhaps it's happening in a specific area and we just there's just not a lot of opportunity for fossilization but also as you've already mentioned there's a huge bias in the fossil record of ants we don't see most ants in the fossil record so unless the entire ancestry of ants as they went from not ants to ants happened on trees yep we are unlikely to happen happened on trees at a hundred million years ago when we get that famous cretaceous amber yep oh then we're unlikely to see a lot of the steps in their evolutionary history precisely also the ant caste system is a fairly flexible and very easy to evolve different forms of it mm-hmm. so like it is also likely that this is something that changes quite quickly and and easily among ants we've mentioned a ton of different versions already but there are also ants that have gained for instance soldier ants have evolved multiple times in different groups of ants a soldier cast mm-hmm. is not ancestral to all ants that is something that many ants have come to evolutionarily but then there's also ones who have lost things. There are ants that don't have workers. Huh. Slaver ants no longer have workers. They only have a soldier caste that then they send out, steal workers from other species, <laughs> chemically and scent, mark them so that they will grow up thinking they are of that colony. And then those ants do the worker caste jobs. They steal workers. They steal workers and they have evolutionarily lost workers if they don't steal workers they will starve to death because like the soldiers you mentioned their mouth parts are only good for grabbing and stealing other ants wow <laughs> so they just grab pick up an ant get, come over here i need to eat yeah i need chores done <laughs> yeah i need you to feed me yes exactly <laughs> you also have groups that have evolved things like worker queen intermediates where you don't have a distinction between the two but there are groups of workers that do some of the egg laying Mm -hmm. or that the workers can take over if the queen dies. So the queen is not a distinct caste. So this diversity early on is also representative of the fact that it is something that diversifies very easily among ants. Yeah. Yeah. So ants were ants, recognizable appearance, recognizable lifestyle and behavior a hundred million years ago which puts us around the middle of the Cretaceous, yep. the early Cretaceous technically, I think, which means that a bunch of dinosaurs grew up with ants. Precisely. Like T-Rex had ants. I wonder if there were ants that had really like fire ant or bullet ant like ants or army ants. Like when little baby T-Rex went out to explore, 
would the parent have to make sure that the baby doesn't get too close to an anthill? Right. And like, no, 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 don't go over there. You will be unhappy all day. And very likely, because there were some very extreme Cretaceous ants. Estimates put that they likely evolved 110 to 120 million years ago. So which, 10 to 20 million years before we have fossils. Yeah. Which, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, would not be at all surprising because it puts them around the same time that angiosperms, yes. flowering plants, diversify and come into their own. And that is a time period where we see a lot of modern groups of insects radiate and diversify. Yes, and we will talk more about that connection, especially as we get into the Cenozoic. Yeah, the, the plant-insect connection on Earth is one of the most thorough and deeply rooted relationships in evolutionary history. Yeah, one of my favorite things to note, uh, back in the day when I was younger, my grandparents would each Christmas give me a subscription to National Geographic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on the spine of the National Geographic magazines, it would tell you what topics were covered. So right. it would say dinosaurs, sharks, archaeology, Egypt, blah, blah, blah. And, like, every fifth or sixth or eighth, it, it felt like a very consistent one of the categories would be ants and plants, ants and plants, ants and plants. I had, like, half a dozen National Geographic's <laughs> Where on the side it said ants and plants. Yep. Because that is a really strong connection. There are plants with special holding areas for the ants to live in to guard the plant. There are plants that make special ant grabbable seeds that are specifically shaped for the ants to be able to grab. Just and, little, little handbags for ants. Yep. So that they can eat a food part of the seed, but not the whole seed, mm -hmm. and therefore bring the seeds into their underground nests. Like... Ants and plants are are real tight. Like, yeah. if you can see me crossing my fingers, they're like this. <laughs> now, these early ants included a mixture of crown group ants that would give rise to the modern groups of ants, mm -hmm. as well as stem ants and ants that would go extinct and are not connected to the ants we see today. So we did have some of the early ancestors of today's groups of ants already in the Cretaceous. But the Cretaceous fossil record is not particularly great. Ants are not particularly well known in fossil records from this time. They're also often very difficult to ID accurately, because how do you tell the difference between ants and ant-like hymenopterans? Yeah. And also, and here's a topic we haven't touched upon, the fact that, as we said before, there are tons of things in an ecosystem that adapt to the presence of ants. Mm -hmm. There are also a ton of ant mimics. Oh, yeah. So we talked about mimicry back in episode 126. Ants are one of the most common things for other things to impersonate. Absolutely. One group that's been among this debate for quite some time is the Armaniidae, which are likely close relatives to Formicidae, the ant right, True group, ants. True ants. But it's been very controversial. So that they are ant-like. Whether they're ants, whether they're close to ants, whether they're something that just looks a lot like ants is is mm -hmm. very debated. They're adjacent. They're adjacent. And this is an issue with this time period. But there are some well-known Cretaceous groups of ants. By far the most famous one you'll see initially that you'll see m mentioned quite often are the Sphecomyrminae which seem to be the closest known relative to extant ants. Living modern-day species. From the Cretaceous. These were present for about a 20 million year streak during the Cretaceous. 
still rare in the fossils because all ants are, and they are only found in amber. There are no other versions of fossils for this group. Generally, they look very similar to ants. They have a couple of different features. Uh, they noted that they have slightly shorter antennae. The bottom part, that first section before the elbow, is short on them. And I saw it described that they have a mosaic of ant and wasp traits. Oh, cool. So they've got kind of a blending of their ancestral wasp and what we would recognize as ant features. They were likely foragers on the carnivorous trees that they were getting trapped in the resin and those areas around those forests, but were already as it was, but surprisingly diverse. Uh, they show different morphologies implying many different behaviors and type of feeding and colonial styles. They do seem to already be eusocial all the way to having a differentiation of worker castes. So, Already, they seem to be full colonial ants, full colony blown. There are even amber samples that trap multiple workers in the same piece, which suggests group foraging, mm -hmm. that they were working together to get a task done. So this group is already very ant-like, even though it is outside of all of our modern groups and is very near the origin of ants. And there were weird ants already in the Cretaceous, like specialized in ways we don't see any other ants specialize. Ooh. I think we mentioned this in one of the newses. The Hato Mermicini. Oh, right. Or the Hell Ants. The Hell Ants. Yeah, <laughs> we did this in the news not too long ago. Yep. <laughs> These are also some of the earliest ants known. These are from about the same time. And these already seem to be eusocial. They show features that they are living in that caste system already. They likely diverged from other ants before the common ancestor of today's ants existed. Right. So these are ants that are related to the ancestors of all the modern ants we have today. Yes. And probably even related to the ancestor of the ancestor of all modern ants. Right. Like, this is a more distantly related. They are found in Asia, Europe, and North America, and they have a normal-looking ant body. It was one thing said the post cephalic features are very ant like. And from the neck down, nothing surprising. Yeah, their head <laughs> is so weird. One thing it said it was probably the most specialized and unique ant head, period. Weird. They sport scythe like mouthparts. So their jaws are shaped in a elbowed scythe like shape. Mm hmm. But it points upwards, so it comes out from the face, and then two long scythe-pointed parts point up to the top of the head. Yeah, like, like a broken rake is sticking out of the front of the face. Exactly. Then, on the forehead, above the eyes, they have a horn-like projection, and their head is tall, so it's dorsoventrally, so top to bottom elongated. All of these things are unique among ants. Mm-hmm. But what's even weirder is how they're using these mouth parts. From what we can tell, and this is based off the fact that we have a resin sample with an ant using their mouth parts, they don't open their mouth parts side to side like we think of ants doing. You know, one goes left, one goes left, one goes right. Right, like mandibles and insects are supposed to do. Yep. These mandibles move up and down, and the scythe portion interacts with the horn on the head to make a grasping structure up and down across the face. 
Yes, so this is an ant whose jaws move like our jaws do, which, right off the bat, creepy. Weird. Don't like that. But then the jaws go, like you said, forward and up. Kind of like elephant tusks. Yes. Like, sticking up in front of the face. And then that horn on the top completes the pincer structure that allows them to grab stuff. Yep. There's an amazing YouTube video by Eons that goes through them that will be linked in the blog post. So if you're having trouble visualizing, go check that out Mm -hmm. and get an awesome explanation. The instance in Amber that shows these ants using their jaws is it grasping another insect, which seems to indicate that they were likely predatory. Mm -hmm. And the shape of their mouth parts also seems to support this. Now, not only is this a weird group of ants, they're super diverse with a bunch of different hell ant headgears. Like they have different mouth parts, different shaped horns that seem to do different jobs and different kinds of hunting behaviors. Weird. Some, I mean, you know, it's not weird. Right? <laughs> that headgear in animals seems to, once it shows up, it just diversifies and does all sorts of things. We talked about that in episode 140, also in episode 87, also probably elsewhere. <laughs> so that's not, it's not weird that that happened, but weird. Yeah, it gets so weird. Some seem to be specialized for just grabbing the prey, you know, holding it. And likely being able to introduce a sting while it's held. Others seem to be able to kill upon grabbing. You know, it is a lethal bite. If you can call this a bite, a face grab. Right. These are hugging faces. I I just now I was going to say a face hug, if you will. This is, yeah. Wow. I love it. Some seem to just grab on the outside. Others seem to be specialized to stab the prey upon grabbing it. And potentially drink its fluids while it's stabbing it. Bah. That idea partially comes from, because that's what trap jaw ants, some species do today. Trap jaw ants are a modernist group, and they have specialized jaws that work where they open the jaws out and then lock them into place. There's a locking mechanism in their face that holds the two jaws out at basically a 180 flat plane. They then walk around and they have seti hairs on the inside of the jaws that act as trigger hairs and when they get too close to a prey when the prey triggers it the jaws are released causes the jaws to snap together Mm -hmm. simultaneously with extreme force it is one of the fastest movements known in the animal kingdom this is like a sand striker worm but it's an ant exactly and when they close very often they kill their prey on impact Mm -hmm. Their jaws are so powerful that one of the ant's strategies when it's threatened is to put its face toward the ground, trigger its jaws, bite the ground, which then forces it up into the air and launches it away. (laughs) That's how powerful these jaws are. Some instantly kill, others just grab and then sting it. But the reason it's notable is similar fine-haired seti have been seen on some hell ants that might indicate that they're using a similar trigger system Whoa. And feeding potentially in a similar way to trap jaw ants today. Cool. Just instead of closing together, it's closing upward. Yeah. To give an idea of how unusual these ants are, there is only one other organism that's ever been noted to have this kind of jaw structure. And it is larvae of a particular group of beetles, the hydrophus beetles, that have a... Horn on the head and 
upward curved jaws that they use to close with that horn and also are predatory. That's the only other insect known to use this face structure, period. Wow, and that's insects. Yes. And that's, <laughs> that's saying something. Like, of one of the most diverse groups and weird groups on the planet, only yeah. two have ever come to this way of doing things. Yeah, and they are members of two of the most notably diverse groups of insects. Yep. The hell ants did not make it past the Cretaceous, mm -hmm. and we're not sure why. There's been thoughts that maybe they were overly specialized, that this was a very specialized hunting technique mm -hmm. that then made them more prone to extinction at the end of the Cretaceous, but we aren't sure why they didn't survive or why it's never re-evolved. Yeah, that there's no ants that have done that again. Yeah, it, this was a diverse, seemingly successful group for the time they were around. They were also around for about 20 million years, mm -hmm. but... No other ant has arrived at a similar way of feeding. And that's one of the big questions as to what exactly were these ants doing that sets them apart so distinctly. Yeah. And you mentioned that they were an early branch of the ant lineage. So it's possible that something along the way changed in the ancestors of modern ants such that they can't evolve that anymore. Exactly. Like, like maybe the jaws just don't work that way. You just It's harder to get that kind of structure. So they just never happened again. Precisely. These were ants, but they were not in the same evolutionary path as all the ants we have today. Yeah, not ants as we know them. No. So maybe our... <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> maybe our ants today just can't be this awesome. Which... What a shame. Listen, don't let the answer you say that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you just start <laughs> The light starts to go dark. The walls! <laughs> now, once we reach the Cenozoic, then we see a major boost in ant evolution. About okay. 50 million years ago, ants become much more common in the fossil record and start becoming about as diverse as we expect them to be based on today's ants. Okay. So that's when we see the world become as anti as it is today. Yeah. So there have been, for the last 50 million years at any given time, probably maybe 20 quadrillion ants on the planet. Probably. <laughs> One paper made the note that in some fossil deposits, they are so common that they make up 20% of the insect specimens. Wow, that's at those, cool. Yeah, right? So ants become start doing really, really well come the Eocene. And this has also been noted to correlate with when angiosperm-dominated forests went on the rise, when those forests really started to kick in during the Eocene. And many, many people have pointed to that linkage mm -hmm. to be the cause of this boost. Yeah, that when flowering plants do something new, ants do something new. Yes, exactly. And it could be attributed to the trees themselves or the new complex leaf litter, forest floors that the mm. ants can move around in and live in. But there have been studies that have challenged this. Some evidence doesn't seem to support this seeming boost coinciding. Uh, one study found that ants seem to have diversified at a consistent rate, at a constant rate, not a sudden spike right. with angiosperms. So there's some debate there, but... Yeah. And it can be hard to nail down that sort of thing, especially with a group that has a relatively scarce fossil record. Exactly. So it could just be that for some other reason, their fossil record improved. Maybe they started preserving better for some other reason. Right. Maybe they, they were living more in certain habitats mm -hmm. that are more likely to preserve them or something like that. So there's a number of reasons why we could see this boost in the fossil record, but 
since then, it's basically been the world of ants as we know it, just with varying ants throughout the time. I I always really enjoy finding these groups of very familiar seeming organisms that would be present at otherwise unusual time periods. Right. So the Eocene is a time where most of the large-bodied mammals would look similar to, but would not be the same as the large-bodied mammals we have today. Yes. Like, they wouldn't be horses and rhinos and elephants. They'd be weird other things. Whales were just getting their start. And I just love this image of starting in, like, the Cretaceous and imagining a, a video time-lapse that's just an ant colony in the foreground and in the background just all of geologic time is moving yeah. on by. Dinosaurs go extinct, mammals show up, new mammals show up, and just the ants keep moving in the foreground. Precise. It has not been safe to have a picnic for the last hundred million years. <laughs> the ants have changed. <laughs> yes. Right? They, there were hell ants for a while, uh-huh. and now we've got different kinds of ants, but the ecological niche remains similar. Absolutely. And there are some behaviors that I know have come about more recently than others. Uh, if I remember right, the leaf cutting behavior only came around after the end Cretaceous. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was not present beforehand, or at least we don't have any evidence for leaf cutting ants. And some have even suggested that it might be have potentially been in response to that extinction, that that fungal feeding behavior started. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that we see a fungal spike after Mm -hmm. that mass extinction. That could have been one of the reasons they started harvesting fungus. So there are definitely shifts we see throughout ant behavior and ant species, but Ants have been around, and they've been ant-like yeah. that whole time. Uh, here's the thing that I like about this. This means that ants have been basically ants for longer than crocodilians have been basically crocodilians. Yep. <laughs> which, yep. which is fantastic. Yeah. And it and it really, like, they've been social, like, that, complex society. <laughs> that's the part that blows me away. Yeah. You social ants have been doing that for a hundred million years at least. Which, yeah, it's it's another one of those examples where if aliens were to visit our planet, they would not be, they would be easily forgiven if they said, well, this is the ant world, right? Right. Like, they, they're the ones who have been running it the longest time. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we can start to wrap up this discussion. There's so much more that could be said of ants. We just touched on some of our favorites. We could have done an entirely different list and it would have been just as interesting. Yes. So if, listeners, you would like to populate our request list with more ant-related requests, go right ahead. Please feel free. Let us know your favorite type of ant. Yeah. I would love to see people sharing their favorite weird ant examples and behaviors. Do that in the Discord. When this episode comes out, fill the Discord with ant discussion. Yes, please. But before we wrap up the episode completely, we have one last section which is our patron question. If you sign up on Patreon at a certain level, you can submit questions that get answered on the episode. Answered. <laughs> What's our question? <laughs> this episode's question is from Carl August, who asks, if we run the tape backwards and let the Cambrian explosion happen once again, do you think similar creatures would emerge or perhaps something completely different? What does convergent evolution, chance events, simulations, and so forth tell us? This is a classic evolutionary question. Yeah, this is one of like the kind of philosophical evolutionary science brain teasers. Right. Is evolution 
on a predictable path? To what extent is, is evolution predictable? If we go back in time and start over from a particular point, will evolution proceed in the same way? Right? Will we get the same basic groups of organisms that we got? Yeah. If we go back to the end Cretaceous and we let the clock run for 66 million years, will the world look basically like it does today or would it be totally different? Yeah, and it's it's the common concept of you know your variables. If no variables are changed, if we're on the same planet, if the continents form the same way, if the sun is the same, if everything's the same, will life evolve the same way each time? You know, if you had five Earths in different dimensions that were identical and you watched them all, would they all evolve the exact same life? And this has been tested. There have been experiments that have looked into kind of answering this question. Uh, the one that comes to mind is the LTEE. Richard Linsky's long-term evolution experiment, which is a fascinating topic where they basically the lab has kept several strains of bacteria evolving in lab conditions for many, many years, starting at the same starting point. Sometimes they'll go back to earlier frozen generations and restart there. Yeah, they, they sample it every so often, freeze that sample so they have a snapshot of where we were evolutionarily at this point. And then they can resurrect that ancient population, so to speak, and then start from there again. And what they have found is that there is variation. Yep. Even when all the variables are controlled, you do see differences in the different strains, which doesn't surprise me at all. No. Because there is, you know, evolution is not a random process. Mm -hmm. It is not random. We call it natural selection for a reason. Evolution is predictable to an extent. If you put a group of organisms in a certain situation, you can make reasonable predictions about what might happen in the future. Yeah, if you if we put you somewhere cold, you're either going to die or you're likely going to get big and furry. Right. That's, that's what's likely to happen. <laughs> but there is enough randomness baked in there that I would not be at all surprised if running the clock back would give you something very different every time. Well, because the the driving force within evolution, like natural selection is what gives us the predictable patterns and trends. But the thing that allows natural selection to happen, what it's selecting, are random changes to the DNA. As we discussed in episode 147. Precisely. Mutations often happen randomly. Yeah, so mutations, recombinations, genetic, you know... Uh, duplications yep. and not to mention also the thing that acts as the filter the environment also can change randomly yes there are as carl august said in the question chance events right and this is another one of those what if scenarios what if the asteroid had hit six months later or what if blah 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 yeah a, a slight change in the environment and a slight change in the genetic diversity over time those are random things that f form the ingredients for the process of evolution. Absolutely. So things would not, would almost certainly not happen the same way they did if we were able to run the clock back to the Cambrian explosion. I would expect that we'd see some consistent things. Like, yeah. Well, convergent evolution is so common mm -hmm. that I'd be surprised if we didn't see certain similar behaviors and lifestyles and traits evolving again. And we might see some of the same base lineages. You know, if we're going back to the Cambrian explosion, well, those all evolved from something that was around before the Cambrian explosion. Mm -hmm. So that's already set. 
So whatever diversity there was before the Cambrian explosion was there. So you'd likely see some of the same, you know, phyla and and major groups might still become fish exactly but then where they go would become likely extremely different you might not get sharks you know chondrichthians but you might get a shark shaped thing yeah so i think i guess but the short answer for me is i do think we'd see a lot of differences if we could do that but i also think we'd see a lot of fascinating similarities just based on the general constraints of what works in Earth-based environments. Yeah, if we assume that Earth, you know, just the physical structure of the planet, maintains the same way it did the first time we went through the last 500 million years, if that doesn't change, then yeah, the same niches still need to be filled. The same habitats are available for them to live in. So it's likely we're going to see similar shaped and behaving things. Yeah. But genetically, they are probably going to be very different. I think Stephen Jay Gould wrote about this question. And I don't know off the top of my head, but if you go searching for Stephen Jay Gould and determinism in evolution, you'll find essays written about this topic. Yes. Um, and look up Lenski's long-term evolution experiment because it's just so cool. So thanks for that question. Yes. And thanks to all of our patrons as usual. And with that, we can wrap up this episode Like we said, if you have extra ant questions or thoughts, please send them our way through email, social media, Discord, all of that good stuff. Absolutely. It is the beginning of October. Yep. Which means that all through this month, we'll be releasing Spooky. So check that out. Four episodes, the four remaining Saturdays in October. We will have one after the other. We are doing Monsters of Dungeons and Dragons. Make sure to tune in. Yeah, so you have just a little bit less than a week from this airing for the first spooky creature. (laughs) And of course, there will be a blog post, as we mentioned, after this episode with pictures and links and stuff that you can follow further. Check back in a fortnight for the next episode. This has been a lot of fun. This This has been two quadrillion ants worth of fun 20 quadrillion even 20 quadrillion i'm exuberant (laughs) i'm trying to think of more i got boy ant boy ant that doesn't really work (laughs) i had exhaust ant but that's more just not even a that that doesn't even work no it doesn't we're really running out we're we're running low on fumes over here send us your ant puns yes and we will don't do that this is we're all the ant terrible All of them. I want. I want. Send us your favorite ant jokes. (laughs) Bye-bye for now. Ants. Ants. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.